Amen. You may be seated. Well, for many of you, uh, this man next to me needs little or no introduction. Uh, but for a lot of you that are new to our church, uh, you may not know that this man and his wife who attend faithfully and sit back here uh, was our pastor for 20 years here at Bethel. And he retired in 2013, but I have not let him enjoy his retirement always. Uh, we bring him back out of retirement. Uh, he preaches for me occasionally. He helps me with a lot of other services here at Bethel. And he has remained active in our conference. He's the overseer of some churches. And so uh, he continues to be a benefit and a joy uh, to the church and has been just a wonderful friend to me and has uh, supported me, and we have worked so well together uh, since I've been here, and I just have really come to appreciate Aiden and his ministry. So this is Pastor Aiden Miller. Um, I want to uh, pray for him, and then he's going to bring our sermon for us this morning, all right? God, I just thank you for Aiden, and I thank you for his many years of service to you, and I know he wouldn't want those accolades, but uh, you call people uh, to minister and to shepherd your your flock, and he's done that for many, many years and continues uh, to invest where he can and where he's asked. And, and I'm just thankful for the relationship that he and I have. And I pray your blessings on him now as he opens the word again and teaches us uh, your amazing truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, I'm going to pull this out. Thank you, Pastor Sean. I should say at the outset that it doesn't always work very well for the pastor who was there previous to stay at the church. Pastor Sean and I have a a really excellent relationship, and this is how it works. I don't tell him what to do, and he doesn't tell me how to preach, (laughs) or thereabouts. But uh, no, we have... We have enjoyed a really good rapport, and and I deeply appreciate that. He's shown a lot of respect to me over the years, and I I just want the church to know that as well, that he and I get along very well, and it's deeply appreciated from my standpoint as well as I know it is from his. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read only one verse in a few minutes, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And while you're turning to that, as, as you know, if you were here when I was pastoring, often I have a story or two at the beginning. And we as pastors often have stories told about us. I'm going to tell you a preacher's story to begin with, and then I'm going to read you some statistics. And the, the statistics, if you've got a really good memory, you'll remember when I shared those some years ago in a message that I preached when I was still pastoring. I was so intrigued by those statistics that I hung on to them. And I'm going to read them again. They're a bit older, but I would venture to say they're probably still pretty accurate today. Now the preacher story. The story is told of a a traveling evangelist, and, and what they used to do with traveling evangelists, particularly in the smaller churches, the pastor there would invite him to stay at a, a family's house that was close by the church. And this particular occasion, this preacher came, and so he was invited to stay at this farmer's house, husband and wife, a bit older, 
and uh, maybe a bit set in their ways to, to stay there overnight on a Saturday night and then get up in the morning and then head off to church. And so he gets there and he's there and he's welcome and then he goes upstairs and sleeps and the next morning he comes back down from upstairs and here the farmer's wife obviously been used to preparing a lot of food for breakfast. You know, they're farmers, they eat a lot. And he comes down and he and she's got this nice spread and he says, oh, he says, I don't eat before I preach. I'd like to preach on an empty stomach, which by the way, I do as well. But... She said, okay, I think maybe a little disconcerted, but said, okay. Now, the, the farmer, he wasn't much of a church-going guy, so he stayed home, and the pastor, the evangelist, and his wife, the past farmer's wife, headed off to church. And after church, the farmer's wife came back home, and so the farmer asked him, well, how was it? To which she replied, he might as well let Might as well have eaten if in case you didn't get that. If you saw in the bulletin last Sunday, I asked the question there, are you content with mediocrity? Always for messages, I, I pray in the week previous that God would prepare my heart and the hearts of the people. You, I pray for you this whole week. That God would prepare the hearts of the people to hear the message. And that has been my prayer this week as well. So as you take inventory of your life, and particularly as it relates to your Christian experience, as you take inventory of your Christian life, I want want you to think about whether or not you're content with mediocrity in your life. We're going to look, if you look at verse 7 there in a few minutes. We're going to look at six areas in our Christian life and see where we are. Take inventory for me and for you. Take it for yourself. Where I'm at in my Christian life. If any of these areas, am I just content just kind of to slide along it? Well, you know what? It's good enough. That's That'll do. And if that happens to be the case for you, let me just read you these statistics. I thought it was pretty interesting. I said, is it truly necessary to go for zero defects? Why isn't 99.9% defect-free good enough? These are questions often posed to quality consultant Jeff Dewar of Red Bluff, California-based QCI, which I don't know what that is, when he argues for eliminating defects altogether. To make his point, Dewar has come up with some examples for what life would be like if things were done right 99.9% of the time, we'd have to accept the following. One hour of unsafe drinking water every month. Two unsafe plane landings per day at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. 16,000 pieces of mail lost by the U.S. Postal Service every hour. 20,000 incorrect drug prescriptions per year. 500 incorrect surgical operations each week. This next one's kind of interesting. 50 unborn babies dropped at birth by doctors every day. 22,000 checks deducted from the wrong bank accounts each hour. 32,000 missed heartbeats per person per year. And he goes on and says, suddenly the quest for zero defects 
begins to make a lot of sense. Just to set the stage a bit here, I'm not going to read the first verses here, but set the stage a bit. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And I I always have to, often when I read the Apostle Paul's writings to the churches, and I wonder what it was like to sit in a church like this, and I, I doubt that a church was this size, but what it was like to sit in a church like this and have the Apostle Paul's letter read publicly for the first time. That man was blunt. He didn't mince. You didn't have to wonder what he was thinking when he talked to you in the letter. And here he's he's really he's commending them in verse seven. But before he gets there, he is asking and he's telling him, "Hey, you need to follow up with what you committed to last year. You said you're going to raise money to send to the people in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was having a really hard time. They're under duress, persecution." They were what we call poorest church mice. And he said, the churches in Macedonia have already outdone you. You you guys need to step it up. But then he goes in verse 7. Now, if you look at verse 7, Mike, if you could put that up there. Here's what he says in verse 7. And he commends them. And I, I, I like the fact that Paul does this. And he says, but since you excel in everything, he says, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness... And in the love we have kindled for you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. We would say that word excel. I put it, if you saw the sermon title, I put it, give it your best shot. We have, we we say sometimes to somebody, you know, and somebody, we we ask them to do something. Well, I'm not really sure how good I am at this. And then we tell them, or somebody might say to us, well, give it your best shot. Do the best you can with what God has given you. When you think about your Christian experience, and are, are you passionate about who Jesus is in your life? You think about in the secular realm, it's okay. I mean, we, we should, as Christian people, we're people of integrity. We need to be. You know, we, we give it our best shot. When we play games, I, you know, I, I know people when you play board games, it's no holds barred. They give it their best shot. You know, look out. Then you think about education. You think about sports. If you watch sports, sometimes you know these athletes are giving it all they've got. Everything. They leave nothing left. There's nothing left when they're done. What about work? That works for employees and employers. We as Christian people need to be people of integrity when it comes to work, whether the employer is there or not. Give it your best shot. But what about... Your Christian life. Am I content as a Christian with mediocrity in my Christian experience? You know, I, I, I give it my best with the rest of these things I just talked about. Sports, games, work, education, whatever it might be. But what about 
my relationship with God? What about the things that he lists here in this verse? Am I okay with just kind of saying, well, God, you know what? I'll, I'll just give you second chance. You know, my, my first priority are these other things and whatever's left over, you can have. Unfortunately, there are professing Christians. Unfortunately, I say, who are content with being average or mediocre. And it's my prayer for this message. And here's how I pray. Every pastor prays for the messages. But here's how I prayed. I prayed that you wouldn't leave here necessarily feeling guilty. If that's what God does, okay. But I pray that you would leave here encouraged to be passionate about who God is in your life. And particularly these six aspects that we look at here. Paul is commending the church, and I like what he does. He he commends them for areas they're doing well, and then he says in number six there, he says, you also need to learn how to give money. First thing, give it your best shot in faith. You know, we use the word faith a lot in Christendom, particularly in the New Testament, and and we as preachers, we, we use the word faith. But do we really understand what it means from an ordinary meaning for us? Faith, if I had to give you a, a, a definition from my perspective, would mean trust. But even deeper than that, to me, faith, when I talk about giving it my best shot in faith, is this way. It means it's demonstrated my trust is demonstrated in who I am, in my behavior. It's demonstrated in my behavior. Trust and security. Somebody said, and I I wrote this down, he said, it is the trust in God that enables us to walk through life victoriously and to serve God faithfully. And that's a pretty good definition. So I asked the question, in what or in whom do I place my trust or confidence? Is it in who I am as a person? Is it in what I have? Is it what I've accumulated? Is it in my status in the community? Is it in my status in the church? Is it in some object? Or is it in the person of God in Jesus Christ? Faith is more than just believing. Faith means it's like I said a moment ago, demonstrated in my behavior. James writes, he says, oh, you believe in God? He said, good. He said, even the demons believe that and shudder. What is it you believe? In whom or in what do you place your faith? When I, when I asked the question, I had to take inventory of my own life. 
Am I what's called a fair-weather Christian? Do I try to put God in a box? As long as, and I, I, I try to make, do I try to make deals with God and I say, God, as long as you do this, I'll do this. Folks, that's not how it works. When I have complete faith in God, and here's where it gets hard. That means I have confidence that I trust in God no matter what I encounter in life. And sometimes life is hard. Really hard. That means I'm not a fair-weather Christian. That means I have confidence that God knows what's happening in my life. And I yield my life to Him no matter what happens. And that's not always easy. If I don't learn to trust God implicitly, even when life does not make sense, then I'm never going to be able to accomplish these next things that he lists in in this particular verse. Because faith is at the very core, the very foundation of who we are as Christians. And I say that because God says, you shall have no other gods before me. First, at the very core of my being as a Christian, there must be this trust that's demonstrated in my behavior that I trust God implicitly, even when life makes little or no sense. I'm reading the Bible through again this year, and I just got through with Job recently, and I'm, I'm in awe of Job. I really am. Job's faith didn't waver. He had a tough life for a number of years there, actually, quite some time. Job was not a fair-weather Christian. The words by faith are used 52 times in the New Testament in the NIV. Let me just read you a couple clips of it. The just shall live by faith, purifying their hearts by faith. We are sanctified by faith. It says, be justified by faith in Christ. By faith we stand. By faith we live. By faith we have access to God. By faith we are children of God. By faith we have the promise of eternal life. By faith we are saved by God's grace. And the list goes on. Everything I do as a Christian centers around my faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, he says, it will not save me to know that Jesus or Christ is a Savior, but it will save me to trust Him to be my Savior. Faith is essential. And so I ask you at the end of this first point, where am I in my measure of faith? Am I content with just kind of drifting along mediocrity? Or do I have a real passion to give it my best shot to trust God? And I would encourage you, give it your best shot. Secondly, he says, give it your best shot or excel is the word he uses in the NIV. 
in speech. And I'm not talking about necessarily the words we use, although those are important. I've talked in other messages about euphemisms. And euphemisms are simply words that we use in place of other words. This is free, okay? These are just words that we use in place of other words. Be careful about the words you use. Look them up in the dictionary. It's interesting. Let me just give you one. Look up the word heck. If you're a person who uses the word, I had a heck of a time. Look up the word heck in the dictionary and see what's a euphemism for. That's free, okay? That's not what I was going to talk about. But he's talking about here about sharing my faith with people I encounter in life. How well am I doing telling other people about who Jesus is in my life? He's talking about the mandate of the Great Commission. How often do I tell people who Jesus is in my life? And I'm not, I'm not talking about beating people over the head every sentence. Don't get very far with that. But I'm talking about, and I, I encourage you to learn to weave your faith, Jesus, into your ordinary conversation. Yeah, it'll be a little, seem a little strange if you've never done it. Give it a whirl. A couple of days ago, we met a neighbor of ours two streets north. He's remodeling the house. And it still looks very nice. And so I happened to be there and he was painting his front door. So I walked in and said hello and said, who I am, I live two blocks south of there and, and so on. And then I said, I used to know the people who owned the house there. And it was just a prime opportunity just to start to crack the door. And I said, they're part of our church. They're members of our church. That's all I said. But what that does, that begins to crack the door for them to understand we go to church. The people that are there go to church. Church is important for us. It was important for the people who lived there. Share your faith. Talk about Jesus in your everyday life. Talk about Jesus with your fellow workers. I'm, I'm convinced. This is just from my own observation. I'm convinced that friendship evangelism leads to more lasting commitments than about any other kind of evangelism there is. I remember years ago reading a statistic about how few people follow through with a mass evangelism when there's 15,000 people there and a, and a bunch of people come forward. How few people really ever follow through with that. And I appreciated the series we had a year or two ago when Pastor Sean had, Who's Your One? That's simply talking about friendship evangelism. Give it your best shot in speech. Tell others about who Jesus is in your life. Give it your best shot in knowledge is the next one. And I'm not talking about general knowledge or a good secular education. I have nothing against that. 
Those things are important in our world today. But I'm talking about knowledge of God's Word. And that knowledge there, he's talking about perception and understanding of God in His Word. God has given each of us the capacity to listen, to learn, to accumulate knowledge up here about His Word. How much time, when, when you take inventory over, let's do a month, when you take inventory over the past month, how much have you really learned about God's Word? You know what? Do it a year. How much from, from beginning of 2023 until the end? Did you grow at all in your knowledge of God's Word? Somebody said the Holy Spirit has an affinity for the well-trained mind. The Bible never places a premium on ignorance. That's true. That's true. Are you Are you an anorexic Christian? And what I mean by that is accumulating knowledge of God's Word. Now, you probably don't remember what you ate a month ago. But you know it was important because it kept you alive. I assure you, you don't remember what you ate most of last year except maybe a few significant meals. But you know if you didn't eat, you would have starved. You'd have been an anorexic Christian if that's true in your Christian experience too. As I was thinking about this, here's where my mind went to. and This depends entirely on how long you've been a Christian. But if you were to put a grade level on your Bible knowledge, where would it be? Sorry about the microphone noise, folks. But if you were to put a grade level on your Bible knowledge, would you be in first grade, third, middle school, high school, college, postgraduate work? I can't answer that. We all have to answer for ourselves. I've been a Christian for not far from 60 years. I should be beyond third or fourth grade, and I am. But it means that I never get to the point that I know everything. Paul says, Yea, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Peter says, If I can grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where do I start? Where do you start? 
It's actually pretty simple. You can read the Bible through as I do. I read, I have an iPad. This is just a suggestion. I read the New Living Translation. It's easier to read so far as just a conversational English. I read a chronological order, which is interesting. And it's always interesting because when I read that and I come across something, I don't remember reading that last year because this is my fourth or fifth time through this past year's. I don't remember reading that last year, which continues to add to my knowledge. You can go to a Bible study, you go to Sunday school class, but it takes discipline from you to do that, whatever it is, to grow your knowledge of God and His Word. And I'd encourage you, if you've not done that, give it your best shot. And then the next one he talks about is excel in earnestness. And it's kind of, earnestness is kind of an interesting word. And I, the New Living Translation translates it enthusiasm. I would say it's sincere enthusiasm if I would give it my own definition. Sincere enthusiasm. The implication there is clearly an enthusiastic response to God's prompting in your life. It's my interpretation. That diligence, that enthusiasm is reflected in my willingness to work in Christendom and in God's church. Let's get practical. This is free, Pastor Sean, by the way, because you're looking for help. If everybody, if everybody in your church, if you're a visitor, welcome. We're glad to have you. But if everybody in your church, your church at home or this church, if everybody in your church had the same enthusiasm, had the same willingness to work in the church as you do, what will your church be like? It's not always somebody else's job. It's all of ours. So I say to you, give it your best shot. Let me conclude this point from Hebrews 6. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He's just simply saying, give it your best shot. Number five, excel in love. The Apostle Paul here in verse 7, he says, and in your love for us. He's talking about, in this particular occasion, he's talking about their relationship with them to him. This kind of relationship. And I'm going to broaden that for just a bit. And this is a huge subject, and I'm going to keep it short. But when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And you all, almost all of you know the answer. 
Jesus, the Pharisee asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment to which Jesus responded? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, let me give you a bonus. He says, and they didn't ask for the second one. And he said, and the second one is to love your neighbors yourself. You know who your neighbor is? It's the people you encounter in your life on a regular basis. The first is your relationship with God. Like I said, no other gods before me. God has to be primary in my life and His Son, Jesus Christ. But then he says, and, and the love your neighbor yourself. Let, let me just be very frank. There are people in your life, I am confident, that are a pain to love. It's not easy. You know what? Don't go down the other aisle. Love them anyway. It may shock them. It might shock you too. They're not as bad as you think they are. Love God. Love your neighbor. And then Jesus said this in John thirteen thirty five. He said, By this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Lastly, Paul talks about money. He says, hey, if you, if you look down, I think, in verse 10 there, he says, last year you gave and you basically, he said, you said you're going to give more this next year. And Come on, step it up. Where's the money? Preachers, and by the way, I, I can do this. Preachers, it, it, sometimes it's a little awkward for us to talk about money, about giving money, particularly if we're self-support, not, I mean, supported by the church. Bethel has always been, and those of you who are visiting, you can just listen in on this, okay? Bethel has always been an extremely generous church. Bless you for that. But I bet for some of us, there's room for improvement. Paul says, you know what? Excel in this. The gift of giving. And the way he terms it, it really, and he's saying, you, you can, you got two choices here. He says, you can either give or not. But he says, if you don't give, this is my interpretation, okay? If you don't give, you're really missing out. You don't understand what I just said in these previous five things. Learn to give, to give generously. He talks about the Macedonian churches, and he said, and I looked this up a little bit, and he said these people, they were poor. The Macedonian churches were very poor. And he said they gave even, in fact, we had to tell them enough. They gave money even when they could barely afford it or couldn't afford it. And the church at Corinth was far better off financially than the Macedonian churches and obviously the church in Jerusalem. And say, well, what, what's the motivation for giving? You give out of a heart of abundance, of appreciation 
for what God has done for you, for what the church does for you. He's saying you can have all these other things, but if you miss this, you've really missed the thrust of what I'm trying to tell you. When I refuse to give, when I'm tight-fisted, what am I saying to God? Because to me, giving is a probably... I'm, not, I'm talking about money now, folks, not time. Time should be anyway. To me, giving is the most tangible expression of thanksgiving to a generous God that you can do. Yeah, but you're talking about my money. No, I'm talking about God's money. You know the old saying, you don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You're not taking any of that alone. All of it. When you are a generous giver, it's a recognition that God is the owner of all that you have that you are simply a steward of what God has entrusted to your care because you're not taking any of it alone. I've said a number of times in funeral meditations that what sent on ahead is what God uses to build your mansion. The things you do for God gives Him the building materials for your house in heaven. Learn to be generous. He's not demanding, sounds like it. Like you say, he's pretty blunt. But he's simply telling them, you have an opportunity to give and don't, don't miss out on that. He's just simply saying, something is wrong in my spiritual life if I'm not a generous giver. Somebody said, be a stream, not a stagnant reservoir when it comes to giving. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, as we bow in your presence and as we, we look at the, the words that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and, and we recognize that there are areas in our life where we fall short that we've been content with less than the best for you and and we ask your forgiveness for that. And Father, I, I just pray that all of us would leave here with a fresh enthusiasm, a fresh passion to give you our best, to give it our best shot in all of these areas in our Christian life. Father, we are so wondrously privileged to be children of yours, to know that you love and care for us. And help us to understand this is just just the only appropriate response to a loving Heavenly Father. We love you for your faithfulness, for your patience. And I pray you would bless us as we leave this place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Ask for a closing song.